I invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to Exodus chapter 2. We're going to be giving our attention to Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As you're doing that, I would like to extend my welcome to you all. My name is Greg Durenberger. I'm the senior pastor of Emmaus Road Church. We are so honored that you would be worshiping with us today, and it's, our, it's always our heart's desire and prayer to God that we would experience the presence and the power of the, of the living Lord. And we, what we mean by that, it's not just kind of a, ooh, you know, sort of a feeling, you know, it's, 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 it's a seeing, it's a beholding of the glory of God in his word and uh, among his people, and uh, that is a powerful thing that we know that we cannot produce in and of ourselves. We are depending on the Lord to do that. So, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It was, it was February 22nd, 1980, and I was driving through the Midway neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, where I had been serving as a pastoral intern in, a, in an urban church, and my heart was pounding with adrenaline as I listened to the radio broadcast of the Olympic hockey game between the mighty Soviet Union and our very own Minnesota-dominated roster of the United States. And uh, it was in the pregame speech by Coach Herb Brooks, it's now been immortalized in the movie Miracle, where he charged those young players with this phrase, great moments are born from great opportunity. There's a lot of wisdom in that sentence. <laughs> over and over in history, we've seen the principle played out. You know, with, without a Goliath, young David's victory would not have seemed all that much. Um, without the Russians, there wouldn't have been the urgency or initiative to put a man on the moon. Without a diminishing oil supply, there might never have been the kind of creativity to make a Tesla. Without a virtual famine for the word of God, Emmaus Road Church might never have been planted. And without Pharaoh and all his narcissistic neurosis, there might never have been the Exodus. And without the Exodus, there would not have been such a poignant foreshadowing of the greatest salvation miracle in all history. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And our text today drops us into one of the greatest of all great moments. And so for the sake of God's praise, and for the sake of our eternal soul pleasure, let's give our attention to God's voice through Moses in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And if you're able, please stand in honor of God's word. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him 
three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. May God bless the reading and the hearing and preaching of his word. Let's pray together. And so, Lord, it is our heart's desire, again, to commune with you, to know you, to behold you, to behold your glory and beauty in the face of our Lord Jesus, who is the Christ. And we know that that will only happen according to your kindness and generous heartedness to us through the working of the Holy Spirit. So please move among us now as we look into your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I believe it's vitally important uh, for us to remember that Moses composed the book of Exodus for a generation of people who had lived their entire lives in a desert wilderness. All they knew was emptiness. All they knew was the Land in between, that's the land between Egypt and enslavement to a tyrant and the place that God had promised where they would enjoy his fullness and blessing. So just imagine that. It's a a lifetime lived in an empty place in emptiness. A lifetime. A lifetime of waiting. (laughs) A lifetime of waiting for a desirable and blessed future, but there is no discernible sign of it on the horizon. How do people, how do you do that? How do you persevere in the land in between? How do people keep on 
hoping? How do people keep on living when every day is as barren and as fruitless as the day and the weeks and the months and the years before? Will this meaninglessness ever give way to passion and purpose? And into into this emptiness, Moses records and recounts God's holy history. And Moses' purpose is to engender hope. Moses' aim is to feed their faith and embolden their confidence that God is actually faithful, that God is faithful to his people, faithful to his promise, faithful to keep his, fulfill his purpose. And and in this particular chapter of the storyline of God and his people, Moses speaks, he speaks to his wilderness-bound followers and he communicates this very fundamental truth. Namely, that God uses the faithful efforts of his humble servants to save his people from certain destruction. God uses the faithful efforts of his humble servants to save his people from certain destruction. How how did the people of God persevere in the land in between? How do we persevere in the time between God making us his own and the time we enter our eternal promised land? A crucial truth to sustain us is the truth that God uses the faithful efforts of his humble servants to save his people from certain destruction. That's good news in the land of between. Good news when everything's empty and meaningless. And in Exodus chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, God's people, God's people are on the precipice of certain destruction. We know it because of what Paul wrote in Paul Moses wrote in Exodus chapter 1 verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That is a a legal binding mandate for every person under his rule. If If you discover a Hebrew baby boy, you shall kill him. Drown him. Feed him to the crocodiles. And into this setting and system of legalized infanticide, the next verse and a half are utterly discouraging. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. 
the woman conceived and bore a son. So the, the emphasis on the, the line and lineage of Levi is intended to leave no doubt in our minds that what we're talking about here is Hebrew parents. It's not an Egyptian couple. It's not some foreign expatriate household. The husband and the wife that we're talking about here are Israelites, and we can be certain that under the circumstances, those nine months of gestation were not attended with eager anticipation, but rather with dread. Because, as the mother was showing, people were watching. And when the baby is born, their greatest fears are realized. The gender, there's only two, the gender is male. And in Exodus chapter 2, verse 2, it says, And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. As, as we know oh so well here at Emmaus Road Church, infants are only soft-spoken for so long before their little diaphragms and vocal cords uh, can, can outkick the coverage of our best attempts to control their volume. And so for his original readers, Moses sets this hopeless scene of certain and really more than likely gruesome destruction. But Moses also means to teach his readers that God uses the faithful efforts of his humble servants to save his people from certain Destruction. And, and so Moses shows us these, these faithful efforts of God's humble servants, beginning in verses 3 and 4. And when she, this is Moses' mother now, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it. And placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. She wasn't intending just to abandon him. The reason that only the sister waited to see what would happen is more than likely because the mother would have been forced back into her slave labor. One of the remarkable things about this text is that there are no names mentioned until we get to verse 10. We, we do not know that Moses' mother, mother's biological mother's name is Jochebed until we get to Exodus chapter 6, verse 20. We do not know that Moses' sister's name is Miriam until we get to Exodus 15, verse 20. We never know the name. Of Pharaoh's daughter. And at this point their names are not important. Because what is important is that a baby is saved from certain destruction. Because someone. Someone. Acted with courage 
and conviction. And listen, in, in this so-called land in between, in a wilderness without hope, in a cultural landscape that is it's intolerant of any view except the view that takes a stand on biblical convictions, courage that rises from the fear of the Lord, respect for God, is the only thing that will sustain us in the face of such insurmountable darkness. And such courage, such selfless courage, unnamed courage, that is a victory in and of itself. Last week, Matt drew our attention to the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1. Those, those women who are named uh, expected to be killed for their actions. But they stood against Pharaoh anyway because it was the right thing to do. Andy Wilson writes, Sometimes taking a stand against evil is more important than defeating it. The greatest heroes stand firm because it is right to do so, not because they believe they'll walk away with their lives. We're living in the land in between. And you know it. The days are coming in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, Oh, loved ones, even in our own families, when we will have to stand with conviction. We'll have to stand because it's the right thing to do. Not because we have any hope of walking away with relationships intact or even with our lives. And where does such courage and conviction come from? Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, the midwives, and presumably Moses' mother, feared God, feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. It was, it was faith and the fear of the Lord that engendered such courageous acts. According to Exodus chapter 2, verse 2, Moses' mother, it says, she saw that he was a fine child. <laughs> we, might, we might conclude that Moses' mother is simply making, you know, like a, like a physical observation here. Hey, we got a good-looking kid. <laughs> Look at all that hair. Or, or, or we might assume that it has to do with maybe the absence of a disability. Oh, he's got ten fingers, ten toes, no issues. This is a keeper. No. no th this baby is not simply cute or healthy. The word translated fine is the Hebrew word good. She saw that he was good. And this is not, this is not a statement, therefore, of, about physiology. It is a statement of theology. It is the same word 
used in Genesis chapter 1 regarding God's creation. God created. God created. God created. And it was good. This baby is God's creation. This life is a gift and blessing from God. And it is this conviction which leads to taking courageous steps. So, when it became impossible to keep him hidden anymore, it says that she made a basket. And the, this, this word translated here, basket, is, is not really the normal Hebrew word for some, uh, you know, kitchen or uh, Gardening container. It's not some domestic device, you know. Not talking Longaberger or a Rubbermaid. It's actually the word translated ark. And the only other place in the entire Old Testament where this word is used is in Genesis 6 where God commands Noah to build a really, really, really big longer burger basket. <laughs> and what happens when God's people go into that big basket? God saves. That's what we associate with the ark. God saves, God rescues from judgment, God delivers his people from what otherwise would have been certain destruction. And just as that, that first ark delivered Noah and his family from the waters and provided a fresh start for humanity, so here in Exodus chapter 2, a second ark would deliver Moses from the waters and provide a fresh start for the people of God. But clearly, Moses' mother could not have foreseen such a, you know, she, she couldn't have seen this miracle happening. This, this crafting of a small ark and, and setting that baby boy adrift in that river was actually a rather significant, profound act of faith. Her, 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 her options are limited. She, but she takes the one step that she could to maybe save his life. You know, can, can you imagine this? Putting your baby into the river Parents here, what, what would it take for you to do such a thing? Where did, you know, I, I just imagine every mama bear in this room, that her, her impulse screaming against this, you know. Where did Moses' mother find the faith to do this? From the fear of the Lord. From the knowledge that God saves now, in verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter just happens to come down to that part of the river at that particular time. 
And uh, when she just happens to discover the baby in the basket, she, she knows right away what's going on here. This is a Hebrew baby boy. And she knew her father's edict. She knew what her obligation was. If this child was discovered, the finder was obligated to kill it. But rather than keep her father's command, look at verse 6. She saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. Where'd that come from? <laughs> she felt compassion and mercy. Something in her heart had turned warm towards this child that she knew she was obligated to kill. And, and while she's still kind of, you know, ooing and awing over newborn, Moses' sister steps in and takes this very quick, bold, brilliant step and and volunteers her mother to care for the baby. And, and here's what no one could have seen coming. Moses is saved by Pharaoh's daughter. See the irony in that? <laughs> Again, Pharaoh fails to get what he wants. He, he sees himself as the most powerful force on earth, but at every turn... His, his purpose and resolve are being thwarted. Is he stopped by some other great geopolitical superpower? No. He's foiled by a slave woman, a nine-year-old girl, and his own daughter. So step back again and imagine... You know, a million Israelites in the wilderness reading this story for the first time. I, this, this is amazing. I mean, they're, they're probably just letting out this thunderous round of applause. This is great. You know, this is God's doing. This is the God we're meant to know. This is the Lord and there's no other. This is who he is. This is how he works. Trust him. Rely on him. Respect him. Wait, wait, wait for him. Follow him. He is faithful. He is faithful to his people. He is faithful to his purpose. He is faithful to keep his promise. And he uses the faithful efforts of his humble servants to save his people from certain destruction. You know... Um, in, in volume one, book of Genesis, Moses introduces his readers to all these fathers of the faith, right? He, you know, we got Noah and Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. But, but here, in, in this early part of Exodus, God uses women. Humble women, faithful women, 
unnamed women to save from certain destruction the one whom God would use to save a nation from certain destruction. Commenting on these verses, Phil Riken writes, With all these women against him, perhaps Pharaoh should have worried as much about the Hebrew girls as he worried about the Hebrew boys. <laughs> Isn't it safe to say that the forces of evil often underestimate women of faith? This text could hardly be interpreted as patriarchal or misogynist. There is just no sign of oppressive, demeaning subjugation of women. Rather, these, these are noble, worthy women. They're full of strength and unshakable resolve and convictions that, that give rise to unflinching acts of courage. And here they are. They're, be, they're remembered thousands of years later on account of the role that they played in God's saving purpose. These, these women changed the course of history. But neither does this text promote a feminist agenda. Moses is not suggesting that we you know, we just cast aside the God-given roles that Scripture delineates for men and women. That the females in this passage, each one of them, is oriented toward protecting life. That's the agenda. That's the agenda. These humble women of faith use their strength. They use their resourcefulness to preserve life toward fostering family, toward nurturing and cultivating the next generation. One expositor says, these are, these are strong women expressing femininity in uniquely courageous ways in the face of intense danger. I, I believe this would be a good time to say to you mothers, be encouraged. Do not buy into the lie that says that motherhood is some dry empty land in between, that motherhood is simply this wilderness to endure, and that the pathway into the promised land of true fulfillment and dignity and worth is to cast off your God-given role as a mother. Motherhood's a marathon, right? But it goes by real fast. And as taxing and exhausting and as all-consuming as it is day in and day out, its goal is the invaluable purpose of preserving and protecting and promoting relationship with Christ in your home. Your investment, your instruction, your example, day after day. Day after day after day is being driven deep into the hearts of your children. You're sowing seeds that you may not see the fruit of for years. Years and years. And it requires faith to believe that the seeds of the gospel 
that you have planted in the hearts and minds of your children will one day sprout and flower and ripen into maturity. But like the women of Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, your courage and your labor, listen, it will not be forgotten. And if you're not a mother, if you are not a mother, for all the women here who are not mothers, find the examples of of those midwives in Exodus chapter 1 as an encouragement. They were dedicated to the very same goal, the protection, preservation of life before and until God gave them families of their own. And may the saving of Moses stir your faith because of the essential role all of you women play for the sake of the next generation. There's another thing that stands out in this narrative. And um, it is this dramatic use of irony. You know, it's, it's, it's Pharaoh's own daughter <laughs> who, who saves the very one Pharaoh had aimed to kill. Pharaoh's entire goal had been to eliminate any potential future enemy fighting force and instead he ends up with the very one who would be the future leader of that enemy force living safely and soundly in his very own home. And then there's Moses' mother who who rather than losing her child to the edict of a He's a madman. Instead, she gets, she gets paid. She gets compensated by the madman's daughter to raise her own child. <laughs> again, you, again you, could, you could just imagine those Israelites in the wilderness reading this and squealing with delight. Yes! Justice! Stick it to the man! <laughs> These things certainly engender great joy, but but they are mainly meant to build in us the hopeful confidence that God uses the faithful efforts of his humble servants to save his people from certain destruction. But, but listen, per- perhaps th- this may be why Moses saves his very biggest surprise for last. Up until now, his original readers, his original audience, they're following the narrative, following it with rapt interest. This is a great story. It's a great story. It's an account of drama. It's got intrigue. The the names have all been withheld. (laughs) So, So now imagine the utter amazement when they come to verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Here it is. Here it comes. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. And the first readers who had lived their entire lives in the wilderness, they're battling every day for endurance and 
patience as, as they're following sometimes with great impatience and profound criticism this, this leader whose name was... Wait, what? Did you say the child's name was Moses? You're Moses. Are you that Moses? You're the baby in the little ark? You're the child that Pharaoh could not kill? Are you saying this is your story? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. As they are introduced to the background and saving work of God in the life of the very one whom he had sent to lead them. And so much more than that. For you see, this Moses is but a foreshadow of a much, much, much better Moses. This Moses and all the male infants were sought out in order to be killed for fear of the, his threat to Pharaoh's rule and reign. The greater Moses, Jesus, and all the boys like him, two years old and younger, were sought out to be killed for fear of the threat that they were to Herod. Moses' life was delivered and protected in Egypt. Jesus' life was delivered and protected and preserved in Egypt. In Moses, God draws an Israelite son out of water and makes him an Egyptian son in order to defeat and destroy a tyrannical king. Who else could have done that but a son of Israel and a son of Egypt? In Jesus, God sends his own son down from heaven to become a son of man who is also the son of God in order to do what only such a son could do, defeat the tyranny of sin, Satan, and death. In Exodus, God draws an Israelite son out of water, and God will use the life of this man to lead his people out of slavery and into the promised land. And in the gospel, God will use the life and death of the God-man to lead his people out of slavery to sin and into everlasting life. In Exodus, God miraculously delivers his chosen people. And he does so by redeeming them for himself through the blood of pure and spotless lambs. And in the gospel, Jesus is the humble servant. Jesus is the lamb who was slain and by his faithful act and through the shedding of his own blood, he has ransomed and rescued people for God, not just from one little tiny nation, but from every tribe and every language and people and nation. He's the better Moses. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be trusted. He is worthy to be followed with all of our hearts. He is. Yes, He is. He is. Let's pray.
Lord, we know what it feels like to be in the land in between. We've all tasted of the tension of already having been delivered and yet not yet being fully delivered. What the Israelites experienced is just a taste. We have seen and beheld the more full revelation. And we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we have an ark. We have our, an, an ark of our own to deliver us from certain destruction and to give us a fresh start. Perhaps that's you here today. You know that you need a Savior. You know you can't save yourself. You need an ark to deliver you from certain destruction and to give you a fresh start. And Jesus is such an ark. The ark to save and deliver you from certain destruction and to give all of us a fresh start. So in this groaning world in between, we praise God today that there is a lamb who is slain, who's worthy to be praised, worthy to be praised.